Good morning. Oh, yes, I'm on. Um, so this, this, is, this is slightly nervous for me because uh, it's the first time I've done something like this with technology. Um, so if something goes quiet or I go quiet, you know, this has died or something like that. But God willing, that will not happen. I am indeed Richard Walker, one of the pastors of the church. Been in Reading 18 years this summer. Love uh, living here. Love working at this school. So if there are any teachers, 31st of May, you've got to, uh, if you want a job here, um, come along. No, genuinely, I really love the school. Been, this is my third year. It's a brilliant place to work. Um, and they rent us this space, which is great too. Um, also, what's interesting for me today is that I think this is the first time I've had someone in the room who I teach on a Monday listening to me preach on a Sunday. <laughs> so Eloise is over here in the corner. Now, this is brilliant because someone like Eloise can genuinely check if what I say here lives and marries up with the life I live on a Monday. And some of us, we don't have the benefit necessarily. We work in one place, we do our family life in another place, we do our leisure in another place, and we can think we're really consistent. And actually, slowly over time, we become very inconsistent. And so, Eloise, please, if you notice anything, tell me, okay? I'll try not to cry, okay? Okay. Now, um, this morning, I've uh, entitled this sermon, uh, Recalled. Now, what do I mean when I say the word recall? There are a number of different meanings, but today we're looking at it from these two. The number one is recall in the sense of, um, you know, a, a big corporate company might find that something that they produced is damaged or faulty, and they do a recall. They call it back in. Um, Honda did one in 2015. They called back in three million cars because of faulty airbags. If um, S Maxes and Zafiras were recalled, I think church probably wouldn't happen one week because so many people in this church have noticed drive those cars. But a recall is when you find that something's faulty and you need to bring it back and say, hang on, we need to fix this, repair it or replace it. That's one type of recall. The other type of recall is when you are maybe injured um, or retired and you get called back into service. You've left and you're called back in, you're recalled. Now this um, time between the resurrection and Pentecost, this 50 days between when Jesus rises from the dead and the Spirit is poured out on all people, is a time of recall. It's not just a time where Jesus gives proofs that he's risen from the dead, that is fundamentally important, but it's also a time when he recalls and regroups his people, his followers, his disciples, because actually what's happened to them on their journey has been quite traumatic, and he needs to prepare them for the next phase of what he wants them to do. He's not going to be there, but he's going to send one who is in his likeness, the Holy Spirit, who will teach them and accompany them. So, just very quickly, a little overview. We will um, uh, have a Bible reading a bit later on, so if you want to get there, we're in John Um, Chapter 21, verses 4 to 22. Have a thumb or something just ready or have your mobile device poised. Um, But very quickly, I just want us to think about um, an overview of how Jesus interacts with the the disciples after he rises from the dead. Because it's slightly different in all four of the Gospels. Um, In Matthew, um, the primary focus is on the fact that he reveals himself. And he says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. 
When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The emphasis in Matthew is that Jesus is revealing himself as the Lord of all creation, and he does the big corporate launch, as it were, gathering them to the mountain spot. Okay, here it is. This is what I want you to do. Go into all the nations, preaching the gospel, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then he disappears up off into heaven. It's the big wow corporate event. But that's not how the other four, three gospels kind of show Jesus after the resurrection. If we move to Mark, perhaps the primary focus, or certainly one of the focuses, is on rebuke. Now, this is interesting. It says, later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, that's really interesting. Why is that interesting? Because I'm guessing if I was one of the disciples, I'd be beating myself up about how I wasn't strong enough to defend Jesus when he got arrested. I'd be like, I wasn't strong enough for you. Jesus, I said I'd be there for you. I said I'd stand by you. Peter said, even if everyone else deserts you, I will stand by you. And all of them fled. And if I was in that position, I'd be beating myself up for not being strong enough for the master whom I loved. Jesus doesn't do that. Do you know why? Because he knows they're not strong enough. He knew they would scatter. It was prophesied the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. He doesn't rebuke them for their lack of strength. But he does rebuke them for their refusal to believe him and the people who saw him after he was resurrected. Maybe you spend a lot of time, or I spend a lot of time, beating ourselves up, because sometimes we feel we're not strong enough for Jesus, we're not good enough for Jesus, we're not smart enough for Jesus, we're not you know, radical enough for Jesus. Jesus doesn't seem to really be that bothered about being strong enough. He just says, will you listen to me? I love you, will you listen to me? Will you allow my words to be louder than the words of your heart? Will you allow my words to be louder than the words of your disappointment with yourself? Your fear of what other people will think, your fear of what the government will do, your fear of what the state will do. Will you allow my words to be louder than the words of your heart? And so Jesus gently rebukes in Mark's gospel. Okay, in uh, Luke's gospel, we have Jesus reassuring. So he appears, stands amongst them, and he says, look, you can put your hands in my sides, hands in my palms. Look, I really am alive. Give me a piece of fish. I'll eat it. Yeah, I really, really, really am alive. You can trust me. I'm not a ghost, because they think they see a ghost. And so Jesus comes to them, and he reassures them. And then finally, in John's gospel... He recommissions them. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so John focuses on saying, okay, we're ready. The next phase of the mission is coming. Let's go. And so Jesus reveals himself to his disciples after the resurrection. He rebukes them for not listening to him. He reassures them that he really is alive and all that he says is true. And he recommissions them 
to go and serve him and take the gospel into all the nations. Now, we could say, job done, brilliant, my sermon is over, I'll go and sit down, and we can all have an early Sunday lunch. But there's a bit of detail in that I think is interesting and worth exploring. If we can have the next slide. There's, there's, if, you, if you track the four Gospels together, there's something that doesn't quite add up, and it's on the screen behind me. In Luke 24, 49, Jesus says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Okay, fine. Disciples, stay in the city Wait until the Spirit comes. Great. But in John 21, where do we find the disciples? By the Sea of Galilee. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, said, we'll go with you. So they went, I don't know if they talked like that, but (laughs) anyway. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Now, any of you who know your Middle Eastern geography will know that the Sea of Galilee is 75 miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus said, stay in the city. So what are they doing 75 miles away from the city that Jesus told them to stay in? Now, for us, that could be possible because we have cars. So we could be 75 miles away and pretty quickly get back to Jerusalem if Jerusalem had motorways. But they didn't, did they? They had to walk and it would be about two days' walk. So if, something, if God did something in Jerusalem, it would be about four days before they could get back and be a part of what was going on. It would be two days for someone to come and tell them. They didn't have Instagram to tell them. And then it would be two days to come all the way back again. And by that time, it could be game over. God's finished. He's moved on. So what's going on here? Now, there are three possible explanations. The first is that this bit in Luke happens after this bit. It might be the case. There's no, there's no kind of official timeline. You can put these things together, but you can't be sure. But that's one possibility. Second possibility is that this word stay here just means base yourself. Base yourself in Jerusalem, but it's okay to have a little road trip down to Galilee and go for some fishing. Just make sure you don't settle there. Stay in Jerusalem. Settle in Jerusalem. Be around in Jerusalem. Or it could be that the events of the previous week or so have been so traumatic and so kind of churning up in the disciples that even though they've met the risen Jesus, they still need time to get away and just figure out what on earth is going on. What on earth is going on? And if you notice, the three disciples that were closest to Jesus are in this gang. Peter, James, and John. John's not mentioned directly here, but further on in the story, you will see, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's code for John, was with them. He said, there's Jesus on the side of the shore. So the three disciples who you reckon would be like closest to Jesus, in with the mission, let's stay in Jerusalem, they're out fishing. They've gone fishing. And so how do we kind of pull these things together? How do we pull these things together? I wonder what's going through your mind as I unlock my screen. I think I'm going to go back to paper.
The interesting thing, of course, is that if you, you read John, we'll do it, he doesn't rebuke them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, what are you doing? Why are you going fishing, boys? I told you to stay in Jerusalem. And perhaps that's because they haven't done anything wrong because it didn't matter that they went. Or perhaps it's because he knows they need help. And there's a little bit more restoration work to do in their hearts before they're ready to continue the mission. Just as Millie got up this morning and said some of those seeds hadn't sprouted. You thought, what's happening with these seeds? And then suddenly, they've sprouted. So too here, the disciples need a bit more time to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. Okay, let's read John 21, 4 to 22. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, John mentioned earlier, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out onto land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with the fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. 
The first words that Jesus said to Peter when he called him those years ago was, follow me. And the last words that he speaks to Peter that we have recorded before he leaves is, follow me. And within those two follow me's is a whole world of discipleship. See, Peter's journey starts with the call, follow me. And Jesus said to him, follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And so they drop everything and they follow Jesus and they go on adventures with him. They see him perform miracles. They see him, see him give amazing teaching to all the people. Um, and not only that, they get in on the game. Jesus commissions them and then they go and they go and teach people and they do miracles and they see incredible things. And Peter, kind of halfway through, particularly the Gospel of Mark, has this epiphany moment, this moment, this eureka moment, this revelation moment where uh, Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Peter's on this kind of rapid growth. He's one of the inner circle of three. Everything's going really well for Peter. It seems like he's the guy, or certainly one of the guys. But then crisis happens. Jesus is arrested And all of that ministry, all of those miracles, all of that time spent with Jesus was not enough when the mob came after Jesus to kill him, backed by the authority of the state. They were happy doing their ministry time if the state left them alone, but as soon as there was the potential of being tortured and killed, they ran away. I think that's Instagram calling me back to uh, the Sea of Galilee. But they ran away. They couldn't cope with it. They couldn't see it. And Peter denies Jesus three times. And last time, the Bible says, he called down curses upon his own head. He said something along the lines of, may God strike me dead if I'm lying. I do not know the man. How much stronger can you get in terms of a denial? How much stronger can you get? I mean, this guy's done. Yeah? This guy is a betrayer. This guy is a turncoat. And so, even if he can see all the other disciples saying, oh yeah, good, Jesus is risen from the dead, for him, probably emotionally, it's very hard to see how he can find his way back into serving and following Jesus, because he knows what he's done. He knows what he's done. Can he look Jesus in the eye? If you betray someone, if you're unfaithful to someone, can you look them in the eye? It's really hard. And it takes a long time to rebuild that trust, doesn't it? It says, strike me dead if I'm lying. I do not know the man. And so we see at the end of John's gospel, he's kind of going back to his old way of life. He was a fisherman before. He goes back to what he thinks he knows. And yet, what does he do? He fishes all night and he catches nothing. See, I can't even do my old life well. I can't follow Jesus and I can't do my old life well. I am a washout. And if Jesus didn't catch him at that moment, I don't know, but maybe he would have committed suicide. Because what's there left for him? And if you know anything about modern statistics, you know that suicide is the biggest killer of young men in this country. Because some men find they don't have a way out. They weren't strong enough and they don't know what to do, so they take the ultimate route and jump off the ship of life. And if Jesus hadn't caught Peter, I don't know, it's just speculation, but I wonder if Jesus hadn't called him back into the game, how long he would have lasted what would he, he'd have been a shell of a man for the rest of his life. 
I'm going fishing. I can't even do that. What am I? And so Jesus lovingly restores him. And many of us know the story. He says, follow me. But this time, will you feed my people? Will you feed my people? Now, Peter goes through a crisis. All of the disciples go through a crisis from which they are pulled out the other side. If we can have the next slide, please. Now, I'm guessing none of us will ever do what the disciples did in that way. We're never going to have to you know, experience what they experienced. But here are some examples of our crises, perhaps. Things that we go through. Maybe we never speak these out. But they're things that go on under the surface. Sometimes we have a crisis when we get involved in sin. Either because we're the person sinning, or because we get sinned against. Sometimes we go through a crisis because we just live in a fallen world and terrible things happen. Someone we love dearly dies unexpectedly. We have a crisis. Sometimes our assessments of ourselves are incorrect. The disciples are a prime example of that. They think they'll stand by Jesus through anything and they run away like scaredy cats. And sometimes we have moments where we realize our assessment of ourselves is just wrong. We're not who we thought we were. You know, maybe, maybe we were radical in our 20s, but now we're very comfortable and safe in our 40s. And when we were 20, we, th- we said to ourselves, we're never going to be like those older people who kind of sell out for Jesus when they get older. We're going to be radical all the way to the end. And somehow we find ourselves doing all of those things we looked at in the older people and thought, oh, I don't want to do that. Don't let me do that, Jesus. Somehow we find ourselves there. And our assessment of ourselves is out of whack. Jesus' assessment of us is never out of whack. But our assessment of ourselves is constantly out of whack. And part of our discipleship journey is learning to see ourselves truly as Jesus sees us. Or maybe our trust of others is proven misplaced. Someone we trusted deeply has uh, denied that trust. I personally have never experienced that, but I was deeply upset. I don't know if many of you saw it in the Christian media when Rabbi Zacharias, the revelations after his death, it seems to be that for the last 10 years of his life he was a sexual predator. That man's teaching in life I voraciously devoured when I was at university. I thought this is the best thing ever. And here I stand thinking, like, what on earth happened? What on earth happened to that man? How could he have such a double life? So sometimes our trust of others is misplaced. Sometimes I just try really hard for God, and it fails or goes nowhere. Is that your experience? You try really hard for God, and it just seems like you're getting nowhere. Or maybe, when I realize the world is bigger than my little Christian bubble. See, we, and I mean this very respectfully, we say things in here and we all go yes and amen. But when we go out there, do you get a yes and amen for the same things? Or we come across questions that people ask us, you know, will God save and send to heaven or send to hell people who've never heard the gospel? 
What would you say if somebody asked you that question? You know, people who've never heard the gospel live, no one's ever told them about Jesus. What does God do with them? Does he send them to heaven or hell? What happens? Suddenly you realize some of the answers we get in our little bubble either aren't sufficient, we need a better answer, or they fall apart. And so we have these crises. We think, oh, hang on a minute. Things are not as they were. I am not as I thought I was. Where do I go from here? Which is kind of where Peter found himself and sometimes where we find ourselves. And so here's a couple of thoughts. I'm not, can I just put a little caveat in this? Um, I'm a guy who's walked with God for a number of years and um, I've seen some things, but I'm not a counsellor, okay? So this doesn't come with the British Counselling Association rubber stamp of, um, this, is, this is just my personal reflections as I observe life, as I observe my own heart, as I observe you, as I observe the world, as I read around on the internet. This is what I observe, okay? Test it, see if it's true. So when we hit these walls, hit these crises, what do we do? Okay, firstly, prioritize honesty. Honesty to yourself, honesty to God, and honesty to others. And give yourself time to take stock. One of the big problems in our culture is we want instant things. We want to be instantly changed. We want to be instantly repaired. We want to be instantly moved from this place to that place. And true healing, true transformation can happen with a miracle in a moment. But often it takes time. And you have to have time to recover. You have to take time to take stock and to think. And if you're supporting someone going through a crisis, please don't hurry them out of it. Please let them sit and wait and help them to process it well. Okay? Whether that's a crisis of faith, whether that's a crisis of confidence, whether it's disappointment with someone else, whether it's disappointment with themselves, whatever that crisis moment is, give them time. Give them time. God has time. He's eternal. We are often impatient, but with God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. Secondly, seek reconciliation or peace where that's possible. Now, that's not always possible. If it's a broken relationship and the other person doesn't want to reconcile, you can't reconcile. You can only offer. But seek reconciliation and make peace where possible. That also means we have to make peace with ourselves over it. Sometimes we sit in places, you know, it's kind of resolved in our mind, but we kind of wish it still happened differently. We can't let it go, let it lie, let it just be. We have to keep picking it up and rehearsing it again, and that only makes us more bitter or more troubled or more frustrated or more angry, and we can't let it go. Or just it paralyzes us and makes us unfruitful in the life of faith. So where it's possible, make peace. And make your peace with God. God knows it's happened. In some mysterious way, God knew it was going to happen. Sometimes that's hard to know or hard to think about. But it's true. God sees the end from the beginning. And he knew this situation was coming. And he, in some mysterious way, allowed it to take place. And so in some ways, we have to make our peace with God over the situation first. Now, sometimes we stay in those top two 
places. But where we really, in time, and I say respectfully, we need time, don't rush people, but where we need to get to is to a place where we trust and obey Jesus' call again. Okay? You need to have time out, you need to take stock, you need to recover. But at some point, you have to hear Jesus' call. Remember, Jesus rebukes the disciples, not because they weren't strong enough, but because they didn't believe the words of the witnesses that told them exactly what he had already told them. And we need to hear Jesus' words. And even if we don't understand or don't like them, or maybe we're not sure if we still trust him quite yet because we feel he let him down, uh, us down on something, let's choose by faith to trust and obey him. And it says... After that time when Jesus, Peter gets restored, in Acts 1.14, they all join together constantly in prayer. Prayer is the place where you learn to trust God again. Prayer is the place where you learn to grow in your faith again. Reading the Bible gets God's words to sit in you. Prayer makes God's words live in you. Can I say that again? Reading the Bible will make God's words sit in you. They'll sit there. But prayer will make God's words live in you. And if you've gone for a year, two years, three years, think, where am I going in my faith? My guess is, and I say this lovingly, it's probably because we've dropped the ball on prayer in some way. Our lives are either prayerless or there is little prayer in them. And that's just what happens. Because God lives in us when we pray. God's facts and God's words sit in us when we read the Bible, but God lives in us when we pray and when we praise. And then finally, obviously, um, be filled with the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Okay, so we trust and obey Jesus' call, and we put ourselves in a place that when he shows up, we may not understand everything, but we're ready to receive and follow his lead. The disciples waited in Jerusalem. Eventually, the Spirit came, and they followed the Spirit's lead, and 3,000 people in one day got saved as a result of their obedience to Jesus. We need to take stock. We need to reconcile where we can. Once we've done what we can, we need to trust and obey Jesus' call. His words must be louder than our words. And as we do so, we will be filled with the Spirit.